Matthew 17 says this. This is right after Jesus has this moment with his disciples, and it says this, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here if you wish I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So this is the transfiguration of Jesus. If you've been in the church for a while, maybe you've heard this story before. But in different ways, this experience with Jesus, it shaped the way that these people saw and understood who Jesus was. Right? Three people, right? Peter, James, and John. James, as he's kind of writing his letter in later in the New Testament, he's going to say that every good and perfect gift that comes down to us actually comes to us from the Father of lights, right? The brilliance of this moment kind of, kind of shapes his understanding of God. And when Peter is writing his letters, he would say that actually more than anything else that he experienced, this is the moment that proves to him that Jesus really is who he says he is. And this is why I know we're not just following some kind of religious myth that someone made up. And for John, this experience so defined in his mind who Jesus is, this is actually the picture that John uses to introduce us to Jesus at the beginning of his gospel, John 1, right? He says, Jesus is the light from God that has come into our world of darkness. An unbelievable shaping event. And so the question is, what's actually going on on this mountain? What, what happened here that was so defining that it didn't just shape their lives, but shaped so much of the way we understand who Jesus is. And so, three things I want us to see. Um, there's a glory hidden in this text, kind of points to, there's a glory revealed, and there's also a glory to come, okay? So a glory hidden. I, the very first thing I want, if we're going to understand what happens on this mountain, we actually have to go back in our Bibles and understand what happened on another mountain, okay? The Mount Sinai, or if you read certain parts of your Bible, it'll be called Mount Hora, but it's the same place. And actually, every single thing that's happening in this moment in Matthew 17, all of it is actually meant to lead us back to this mountain, what happened on Mount Sinai, when God's presence came to dwell with his people. And the reason it does that is because the author of Matthew, but also God kind of orchestrating this event. He orchestrates it in such a way that we would think back to this story in the Old Testament and that what we would do is that actually use this Old Testament story as like a lens from which we're supposed to understand what's really going on on this mountain in Matthew 17. Okay, so what happened on Mount Sinai? Well, what happened was God's presence once again came to dwell with God's people. And that seems like a really good thing, but there's this problem because the experience of God's glory on Mount Sinai wasn't what it was meant to be, right? And you have to go even further back in your Bible, actually the very first pages, to kind of understand why that is the case, right? Because in the Garden of Eden, where the Bible tells us that humanity started, 
The Bible tells us that humanity experienced the presence of God like a calm, like something that was peaceful, something that was calm, something that was life-giving and warm and vibrant and wonderful. And it says that like experiencing the presence of God was like walking with a friend in the cool of the day. We were created in his image, and that means that we're able, created uniquely to be able to see and behold his glory and then actually reflect it back into the world. That's what it means to be human, is to be created in the image of God. But after sin entered the world and entered our hearts, what happened was our experience of the presence of the glory of God changed. Right, right after Adam and Eve, they break the command of God, what do they do? Well, they hide themselves from God. Right, when God comes to talk with them, right, they cover themselves, they hide themselves from his presence because now that our humanity is fractured, we can't withstand the glory that it was meant to display. Right, does that make sense? Like the very beginning of the Bible, it's like being in the image of God is like you're supposed to be this like mirror that like the glory of God hits you and it is reflected back out into the world. But now that sin has come into our lives and into our world, it's like a piece of glass that has like these tiny cracks running all through it. A little while ago, uh, I don't know how this exactly happened. Sevi was like, wash, like kind of trying to clear snow off the back of our windshield in a Honda just like sitting in our driveway. And like all of a sudden it just like shattered. Like the entire window just like has a splinter cracks so that go all the way through it. And so it's like sitting there like hanging, right? It's just like hanging on the back of our like window of our Honda and like the tiniest bit of pressure it's just going to like cave this entire thing in. And actually, that's what it's like to be human now. We're created to like bear the weight of God's glory. Actually, in Hebrew, the idea of glory is like the same word for weight. It's like there's this heaviness to the fullness of God's presence. And because sin has now affected our lives, we can't hold that weight anymore. And so we were created to live before the face of God but now we can't face him. And actually now he can't face us. And in some of the saddest verses in the Bible, we're actually told how we are exiled from our home and we're exiled from the presence of God. But then we get to Mount Sinai, right? The mountain we're supposed to think back to. And this is the moment where God's presence is gonna once again come and meet his people. And this is the moment where his presence is going to physically come and dwell with his people once again, but it's not a peaceful calm. It's terrifying. And the glory of God descends on the mountain in a cloud of light and fire, and the ground shakes, and the sound is deafening, and the holiness of God is so intense and so powerful that the people of Israel can't even touch the mountain, let alone go up into his presence. And whenever Moses, kind of the one person who's kind of invited to come up and experience the presence of God, whenever Moses would go up to receive the words of God, when he came back down off the mountain, he had to like wear this veil over his face because his face was like shining with this residual glory from God's presence. And so the people were like, hey, even that's too much. Yeah, I, know, I know we're not like experiencing the real glory, but even your face is like shining this residual glory of God. And so if you could wear a veil, that would help us to protect us from the presence of God. And so Moses has to wear this veil and then God gives him these, these laws of, of how you're supposed to live within the presence of God. But then also he gives him all these commands of how they're supposed to build this tabernacle. It's like this traveling temple. 
And it's like God's presence has come to dwell in the midst of his people, but the very first thing God does is go, I'm going to create a way for you to be protected from my presence because my holiness will consume you if you come too close. So they build the tabernacle so God's holiness would be kind of in this confined space so that people could walk within the proximity of God's presence, but they would never actually be consumed by the holy of holies, the Shekinah glory, the kind of central focused heat of the glory of God. The only way that God's presence can dwell with his people is actually if they are protected from the fullness of his glory. And so Moses becomes kind of this mediator, right? The one who can kind of stand before God in place of the people. But even Moses can't experience the fullness of God's glory. There's actually this moment, right? He's had visions of God. He's experienced intimacy with God in a way that really no other human being outside of the Garden of Eden has ever experienced before. And he's experiencing this, yet he knows there's something he still hasn't had yet, right? He's like, God, I've experienced you, but I want to experience the fullness of you. Show me your glory, that's what he says in Exodus 33. He's had meals with God. He's had visions of God. But he's like, there's still something on the table. There's something I haven't experienced yet. Would you show me who you really are? Show me your glory. That is a really, really awesome thing to ask God. But it's also a really terrifying thing to ask God. And the way God answers him is really interesting. Exodus 33, 19, God says this. He says, okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, right? In our English translation, I'll, I'll proclaim to you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man will not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It's this crazy moment. He's like, I want to see your glory. And he's like, this is the only way it can work. I'm going to cover up your face and your eyes so that when my face passes by, you can't see it. Because it will consume you, it will shatter you, it will destroy you. My back is the closest you can get to me, Moses. And in the next chapter, this is what happens. The presence of God comes before Moses. God pronounces his name. And when he comes down off the mountain, his face is beaming with the light of the glory of God. This is the glory of God, but it's hidden. Right? It's, it's hidden. We, we can't stand in the full midst of it. We can't look directly at it. And even Moses can't see the face of God. But when the disciples are with Jesus on this mountain, the glory of God isn't hidden. It's revealed in its fullness. That's what we see here is the glory revealed. Everything about Jesus' transfiguration is about retelling this mountaintop experience, right? It's six days that God's presence kind of rests on Mount Sinai before God calls Moses up. It's six days before Jesus invites his disciples up on the mountain, right? One of those weird moments where normally it doesn't give us specific days, but it gives us here so we can think, oh man, where's another time we saw six days? Well, it's in Mount Sinai. 
Moses and Elijah, right, they're the two people who at different times, they both experienced the presence of God on Mount Sinai, and those are the two people that Jesus is talking with on the mountain, right? Moses' face glowed with the light from the presence of God, and now these disciples are witnessing the face of Jesus become brighter than anything they have ever yet experienced in this world. They don't know what's happening, okay? They have no idea what's happening, but they're starting to connect the dots and going, you know what, it seems like what's happening in front of us is something like that experience that these people had on Mount Sinai where the presence of God came in a physical, majestic, powerful kind of way. And so the disciples, they see this start to happen, and in the midst of this, this is awesome, somehow Peter thinks it would be a good idea to like... Uh, enter into the conversation they're having, okay? So Peter does this. Uh, this is what he says. He says, wow, man, Moses, Elijah. Also, I have no idea how they know this is Moses and Elijah. I don't know, but they just know. Anyway, Peter just jumps in and he goes, man, it's really good that we are here. I love that. He's like, it's good that we're all here. We're kind of all in the same circle, you know, and uh, if you wanted, I could whip up some tents real quick for each of you. Do you want me to do that? Do you want me to build some tents quick? Uh, okay, this seems like one of the weirder things that Peter ever says. And it is, actually. And in, in all the other kind of gospel accounts in Mark and Luke, it says that Peter said this because he was just like scared and didn't know what else to say, uh, which is like a really strange response to fear. Like, I'm so afraid. Like, we should go camping, right? Like, that's so weird, but that's, that's what he says. But okay, here's what's fun, okay? This word tense in the Greek, it, it's the same word used for tabernacle, okay? Like a dwelling, a tent, a tabernacle. And so what, what Peter's really doing in this moment is like, he, he, he totally doesn't know what's going on. He's really confused, but he's like, okay, I just know that last time the presence of God came in this way, uh, what the people of Israel supposed to do was like build tabernacles, like to kind of shield themselves from the glory of God. And all I know is that it's getting kind of freaky. It's getting pretty bright. I'm actually kind of fearful for my life because I know that I can't stand in the presence of God without some kind of protection. So maybe we should build these tabernacle things. I don't know. I'm not a theologian. I'm a fisherman, but just maybe we should do that. And in the middle of Peter, he just starts to talk about, maybe we should build these tabernacles a cloud starts to descend. And it's not a normal cloud, but it is a cloud of light. And the cloud of God's presence that dwelled on Mount Sinai, now all of a sudden, it has come on the mountain that Jesus and his disciples are standing on. I mean, just think about that for a moment. If you're a Jewish person, your whole life, you have thought back to this moment when the majestic, abstract, kind of infinite glory of God descended on that mountain. And all of a sudden, you are here with Jesus, and that starts to happen again. The cloud of God's presence starts to surround them, and of course, now they know what story they're in. This is the cloud of the presence of God. This is the bright, hot spot, the Shekinah glory of God that you cannot be in the presence of. You have to wall this off and only one priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year and if they weren't perfectly atoned for in their sins, they would drop dead. They know what story they're about to encounter. 
Peter's like, right, this is why I wanted to build tents. We're going to die. They're terrified. They know what's going to happen because it's already happened before. God has come to reveal himself to those who are on the mountain. But there was always a plan, right? Moses, he's like, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. Elijah had a cave to kind of hide in when everything was going crazy out there. There's no plan. (laughs) They didn't have time to build tents. They're just exposed on this mountain as the presence of God descends. And maybe Jesus, right, Moses and Elijah in their glorified states, maybe they're going to be able to weather this. Maybe they're going to be able to stand in this presence. But the disciples know they can't. No way. And they're terrified. And as the storm of God's glory is whipping around them and they're being enveloped in the light of God's holiness, they know what to expect because it's already happened. They expect to hear the voice of God reveal himself by saying his holy name, right? I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And it's hard to describe who he is and define himself by his glorious deeds, But instead of hearing the name of God, the voice they hear is this. It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The moment when the name, the holiness, the glory of God is going to be revealed, the thing that happens is the glory of God says, this is my son. And as the words settle into their minds, they're face down on the rocks, they are terrified. Jesus walks over to them and he touches them. And instead of shielding them from the face of God, he tells them to rise and have no fear. And when they open their eyes, everything else is gone and all they see is the face of Jesus. Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool what's happening in this moment. And all the New Testament is trying to like wrap its mind around with language, like what's happening in this moment. And, and John tells us in 1 John, he just says, man, no one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen God in the first head of John, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Hebrews 1 says it like this. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Colossians 1 just says this, in Jesus, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you would ask God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Present me with the fullest expression of who you are. Give me a window into the infinite. Give me a look past the curtain of this world into the cosmic infinite glory of you. What he would do is he would show you his beloved son, Jesus. Jesus came so that we would once again be able to live before the face of God. 
to see and understand and experience the fullness of the glory of God, it requires us to be able to see his face, right? Like your face. It's like the thing that maybe defines you more than any other characteristic of you. Like you can look at someone and go, I've seen that person before, right? You see someone's elbow and you're like, nah, it's an elbow. I don't know. Like maybe it's them, maybe it's not. But your face, and in kind of Hebrew thought, your face is just like the intimate part of you to see your face, to have a face-to-face relationship. To see and understand the fullness of the glory of God requires us to see his face, but we can't. No sinful person can. It would kill us. We would be consumed. We would be unraveled. This broken mirror of the image of God would be shattered. To see God's face, that is to enter into the deepest and most intimate relationship with him. And to see his face is what would heal us and make us whole. We were made for this, but we've been cut off. This is why Jesus came, that while we can't see the face of God and live, Jesus is the one who touches us and lifts up our chin and says, look at me, face to face. There is no part of me that you can't have. There is nothing that is off limits. And when we see the face of God, when we see the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. This is what Paul is trying to unpack in in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for God, right, the God, like in the very beginning, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the reason I love that passage is because he's writing to people who weren't on the mountain, right? He's like, when you read this book and you come face to face with Jesus Christ in these stories through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's like, what is happening is that you are seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. It is to behold the majestic glory of the infinite God when you see Jesus walking through the stories of his life, when you see Jesus in prayer. Moses says, how can I experience the presence of God? I want to see your glory. Elijah says, how can I hear the voice of God? Let me hear what you want me to do. And God's answer on the mountain is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. The glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And for the first time, sinful people, they can look at the face of God and they they don't die. For the very first time, people who are far from God can be brought near. For the very first time, we can do what we were always made to do. We can stare into the face of God. This is what Jesus has done, but it didn't come without a cost. Part of the reason we get a glimpse of Jesus on this mountain Right, not just these people, but all of us, it's recorded for us, is so that we would understand some of what he lost on another mountain. Right? Where Jesus would walk up a mountain not surrounded by his closest friends, but he'd be surrounded by his enemies. When he wouldn't be surrounded by kind of two of the great saints of old, but he'd be kind of flanked by two common criminals. And Jesus wouldn't be enveloped in the light of God's pleasure and glory, but he would be wrapped in the darkness of God's judgment. When the face of God wouldn't be shining on the sun that he loves, 
but actually the father would turn his face away, unable to look at his son. The reason that we will one day be able to stare into the very face of God, and make no mistake, if you love Jesus Christ, you will one day do that. The reason we can do that is because there was a time when God wouldn't look into the face of his son. Jesus made a way for us to once again live before the face of God. And, and one of the questions I've been asking is just, is that the life we're living? Is that the life that we are living each and every day? Is this the glory that we are pursuing with our lives or have we settled for something less? Something not nearly as bright and beautiful. So there's a glory hidden and on this mountain it's a glory revealed, but Jesus is also doing something more. He's giving us a glimpse of a glory that is to come. I want you to just really quickly think about what it would be like to experience Jesus like this, okay? Like to actually be there on this mountain in this moment as one of the disciples, right? His face is shining. And it's not shining like a candle. It's not shining like a lantern or like a flashlight. It's shining like the sun. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? You can't do it for more than like a minute. And if you do it long enough, you're going to have permanent eye damage, right? The brightest, most brilliant thing in our world that they can compare it to, they go, that's kind of what Jesus' face was like. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's pulling back the curtain. And he's not just pulling back the curtain on himself like, I'm really God. Like the glory of God, that's me, it's in me, I'm really God. He's not just doing that, but he's also pulling back the curtain on this world itself. I love reading Revelation because Revelation makes everything I'm about to say clear. Because it isn't that Jesus' face was shining like the sun, right? It's like, oh, it's really bright like the sun. No. It's that the sun that we've always seen and loved, and when it sets, we love looking at it, and when it rises, we feel the heat on our face, and we love the sun. The disciples are saying, no, 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 no. The sun has always been shining in some small kind of way like Jesus was shining in that moment. He isn't bright like light, but actually John tells us that his brightness is where all other light comes from. God the Father has sent us from heaven his Son, not only to witness to us about God, but to witness to us that this world is not all there is. Would you not feel that with every fiber of your being in that moment when you see Jesus transfigured before you? I've never seen anything like this. There's something beyond what I can see and feel and taste and touch in this world, and there is this moment where that is breaking into my vision. This moment is telling us that there is a world coming where clothing is so radiant and so majestic and the closest comparison we have are the explosions of heat and lightning and the storms in our sky. There is a world coming where the face of our king is so warm, is so energizing, is so bright that the closest comparison we have is our nearest star. In this moment, Jesus isn't just giving them a glimpse of who he is, but he's giving them a foretaste of the world that is to come. When we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we are given a window into the end of the story a light that is brighter than anything we've yet seen or experienced, 
a song that is more beautiful and compelling than anything we have yet heard. A glory that so eclipses anything and everything we have experienced that Jesus has to first recreate us in his image and give us his eyes so that our eyes will be able to handle the sight of it. Do you long for that day? Do you long for that day? This is what we're made for. And when we come to know Jesus Christ, when we come to trust him and love him and place our faith in him, his death and resurrection secure us a place in the end of that story. This is what it says in Revelation 22. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. What does it mean to live before the face of God? One day we will. What does it mean to do it now? It means to live all of our lives under the weight and presence of God's glory. That every other glory in our life would be as nothing compared to that overwhelming weight of his presence that is always with us. It means to orient our minds and our hearts towards the bright light of his glory more than the fading lights that we see around us. It it means to be like those people on the mountain who there's things in their lives, their own kind of ego, their own desires, all of a sudden that fades away when they see this brightness that is overwhelming. It means to live with expectation that the normal life we live will at times be invaded by the presence of heavenly glories that we can't comprehend. This was Jesus. They knew him. They walked with him. They fished with him. They laughed with him. They climbed a mountain with him. And in a moment, they realized there is something about him that transcends this material world. We should live in expectation that when we follow Jesus, we will experience moments like that. Jesus is not just human. He is fully God. He is the infinite. It means living with hope that one day the one on the mountain will come back. Living before the face of God means living with hope that one day Jesus will come back and he will bring with him all the brightness and goodness of heaven. He will bring it all back with him. Would we be the kind of people who live our entire lives with our eyes fixed on that horizon, waiting for that sunrise, waiting with eager anticipation for that day, when the faith we have will become sight, when the Jesus that we see in scripture will stand before us in the flesh. Paul says it like this. He's read these stories, and he says it like this. He says, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, 
but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let's pray. Jesus, it's hard to have language to speak about something that is so uh, physical and tangible and if we were to experience it in this moment, would hit all of our senses at once. It would overwhelm our bodies to see the bright heat and light of the glory of God in your face. But Jesus, we've experienced that. When we see you in scriptures, when we see you, the ways you love people, the ways you walked up that mountain towards the cross, the way you've loved us, the way you've poured out your life for us, we've seen the glory of God in your face. And Jesus, we are people who so often are consumed with smaller lights, smaller joys, smaller pleasures. We so quickly make this world our home. We so quickly get distracted from this journey that we're on. So Jesus, we ask something really bold. We say, show us your glory. Show us your glory, God.